Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In this episode, we hear from Arun Pai, Chief Sales and Strategy Officer at Flow, about Arun's career path in Southeast Asia. From options trading to joining early stage startups, the value proposition for artificial intelligence in fintech, and how Flow uses AI to personalize debt collection. Flow uses AI to revolutionize the way financial service providers in Asia collect their debt. Instead of employing heavy manual operations and potentially shady collection methods, which are common in Asia, Flow uses AI and behavioral insights to optimize debt collection. Flow was founded in 2016 and raised their Series A as well as debt capital in 2020. You can learn more about them by visiting flow-tech.ai. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform. And we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as uh, a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. So now it is my pleasure to introduce Arun Pai, uh, the Chief Sales and Strategy Officer at Debt Collection Fintech Flow. Um, Arun was also Chief Crystals Officer at Retail Asset Management Fintech, Crystal.ai and a VP at Nomura. Uh, Arun, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure, Amrita. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you're obviously doing really cool things with debt collection and AI, um, but first I want to go back to your early career, um, specifically the 2008 financial crisis. You studied engineering and undergrad in the U.S., and then you went to Lehman Brothers pre-crisis. Um, I want to start with, you know, why did you decide, you know, in that world to go into finance? Um, and then what was it like being at Lehman during the financial crisis? Sure thing. So, you know, as an Asian kid, uh, to be completely honest, the engineering degree was pretty much the only thing that my dad was going to be willing to pay for me. So the choice was, okay, you're going to pay for something, engineering degree it is, and Georgia Tech had a pretty decent uh, reputation for being a good engineering school, and so off to tech I went. I think freshman semester itself, uh, Warren Buffett happened to actually come over to our campus and gave uh, an amazing speech, obviously. And uh, that kind of got me interested in the financial services or you know, like anything related to finance. And then I went about trying to join the investments committee of the university, was uh, you know, investing the endowment fund over there, did that for about four years. Uh, and three years into it, I realized you, know, you can't sit in Atlanta and uh, be in finance. I mean, if you're Warren Buffett, sure, you know, Omaha, Nebraska is the perfect town for you. But for everyone else, you kind of have to go to the mecca of the financial capital of the world, basically, and hence uh, New York. So went about trying to apply to, I don't know, like through a hundred different people trying to get into investment banking, got lucky, uh, Lehman Brothers uh, in 2006 accepted me, and uh, off to Lehman Brothers I went right before bankruptcy, which was a very interesting career choice, obviously. But, uh, you know, the first uh, two years were an absolute blast. Uh, started out at Lehman in New York, uh, moved from Lehman, New York to Lehman, Hong Kong, then to Singapore. Uh, a year after that, uh, I was literally flying back from the US. I touched down Monday morning at like 6.30 
I think it was September 15th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, opened up my BlackBerry and uh, boom, there were all these goodbye emails from everyone. And that was officially the end of uh, Lehman Brothers. That was exactly 12 years ago today. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so what was it like being there, you know, during the crisis as it, as it unfolded? And, you know, did it sort of change how you thought about money and how we manage it? Sure. I mean, I, I was an analyst back then, right? It was literally my first job out of university. I'd been there for about a year and a bit. And I think the gravity of the situation really did not hit me because for Lehman Asian operations, at least, Namura took over. Namura is this Japanese investment bank, which to be completely honest, I had never heard of the name until they actually acquired Lehman Brothers. But uh, it, it was a very seamless transition in a way where we were showing up to the office every day, like me and my fellow analysts and the rest of the colleagues, because MAS, the regulator in Singapore, had done a very smart thing, uh, at least from the employee's perspective, of uh, being able to segregate certain assets for Lehman Singapore to ensure that at least the employees can get paid, to ensure that work can uh, continuously happen, because there were still so many derivatives contracts that had to be settled between financial institutions. A lot of work still had to be done, even right after post-bankruptcy. So from that aspect, it was quite interesting to see, you know, to be part of the world's largest bankruptcy ever in a weird way as a very junior person and hence not responsible for the bankruptcy by any stretch of the means. It was quite interesting to be a part of it just to go through that. It was quite earth shattering in retrospect, like, you know, 10, 12 years or even like a couple of years post facto to truly see like what the, you know, the GFC, the global financial crisis caused, like the damage it caused across the entire ecosystem not just banks to begin with, not just Wall Street, but Main Street also. And, you know, it was quite uh, shocking. It was a baptism by fire in a way where I never thought investment banking for all its challenges and, you know, how difficult the environment is, et cetera. I never thought a year into it, something like this would happen. And it kind of like, uh, you know, completely changed my perspective of finance in a way. And so then after, uh, you know, that, you know, big earth shattering moment, you were with Nomura for, I think, eight years, uh, and then decided to shift from being a banker to joining a startup. Can you also talk a little bit about, you know, that thought process? Um, you know, why did you decide it was the right time, uh, I think, in 2016 to make that shift? Sure. So, uh, you know, as I was telling you, like the transition from Lehman to Nomura, at least for me, was very seamless. The paycheck kept coming in at the end of the month, which was an extremely important part of why pretty much anyone's join, anyone joins investment banking to begin with. Uh, to be honest, I actually wanted to leave after like four or five years because Lehman culture was great. Nomura transition went through smoothly. Uh, but, you know, I always thought there was something else out there that would actually be a lot more interesting because being part of a very large Financial, financial institution or a large company, you know, is obviously great uh, from a lucrative, from a monetary standpoint of view, but from actually being able to create value and to be able to see that value reflected in real society to some extent is very different. Because the role that I was doing, like options trading in an investment bank, in a certain desk, in a certain asset class, within that asset class of foreign exchange, it, it becomes very, very niche. So, you know, you, you're kind of detached from the real world. And that's something, you know, taking me back to when I was 18 years old, listening to Warren Buffett and what he loved about finance, about actually investing in companies is very different from the investment banking life. So while, you know, coming to the point about looking of, you know, why to move or transition from an investment bank into a startup, it was kind of that, uh, it was kind of, you know, like, life is actually quite comfortable when you're inside a large organization with a great brand name. And it became very cushy. The money was great. So even though I kind of wanted to leave after five years, it took me another five years of monthly salary of end of the year bonuses to finally come to a point where, okay, if I don't leave right now, I, I'm looking at like my boss's boss's boss and that's gonna potentially be my career trajectory if I get lucky enough to stay in the investment bank. 
And is that something that I want to be 10 years or 15 years down the line? And when the answer to that came back saying no, it was, okay, you know, let's try and figure something else out. And that's common to a lot of investment banking people, right? Where it's just that uh, you just get comfy and cushy in a certain role. That being said, I love investment banking for the fact that, you know, in the span of like nine or 10 years, it's so much more monetarily rewarding as compared to pretty much any other industry that I know. It gave me the luxury for me being able to experiment and try out new things. And, and that's startup life, right? Like you've heard the success stories of like a Facebook, Google, and where you are, like Grab for that matter, right? Like all these unicorns and stuff. But from a smaller startup perspective, it's a very different uh, ball game altogether. So that's when in 2016, after obviously my last end of the year bonus, I was like, okay, now's the time. And uh, then Crystal came along, which is a fantastic wealth management company. And I realized that, you know, to actually empower consumers uh, in the aspect of financial literacy, in the aspect of being able to, you know, invest their money, this opportunity came along and I could help uh, the founders of the company literally grow the business from ground up because it was only a couple of months old when I joined Crystal. And, uh, you know, it was a fantastic ride for three years. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and we actually had um, Kelly Ferrario, the founder of Stashaway, on the show a few weeks ago. Um, wanted to actually ask you, how is Crystal.ai a bit different from, uh, from Stashaway? Sure. And when I was part of Crystal, obviously that was, you know, many questions were asked along the same lines. Stashaway is, you know, they've obviously done a phenomenal job of growing their business in a very traditional robo-advisory business model. But what I mean by that is investors who are interested in, in, in you know, getting exposure to ETFs come onto the platform. They have a fantastic UX UI, couple of clicks, your KYC is done, couple more clicks, you can start your investing journey. So it's a very simple, easy to use platform. I would say more focused on the retail investor side of things. At Crystal, what we were trying to build is more of like a digital private bank, where the segment that we were targeting is more of your mass affluent consumers who might not have access to a private bank with the likes of say Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, uh, Standard Chartered, Citibank, all their private banking segments. Because of the cost of capital to these investment banks or large uh, commercial banks, the minimum AUM or assets under management requirement initially started out probably like a two, three million, then it went to five million. And now you can't even talk to a private banker at any of these places unless you have like $10 million and above. So the genesis of the idea was, you know, even in a place like Singapore, which is extremely affluent, there are so many hardworking people who managed to earn a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million, yet the banks don't kind of care about them, at least from their private banking segment. What kind of uh, an investment platform can we provide to them? So it's a lot more of an esoteric uh, ways of investing, which we call crystals, to give uh, the avenue for investors to try and invest into this. So it could be, think of it as like a hodgepodge of uh, betterment meets like a digital private bank uh, where you can invest into options, you can invest into ETF buckets, you can invest into thematic baskets, you can invest into startups, into funds, you name it. Like across the entire spectrum of investment availability of investment asset classes. So that was the idea of Crystal. So it's a very different model from Stashaway, very different consumers, more mass affluent and affluent uh, consumers that were targeted. Got it, got it. It's a very different customer base. And now I have to ask you this before I move on to Flow, but your role at um, Crystal was Chief Crystal's Officer. Um, what exactly does a Chief Crystal's Officer do? You know, it, it's interesting when you join a company that's three months old, you pretty much do everything, right? Like from getting the coffees to setting up the, co the company. I think at one point of time I was applying for stuff with MAS that I never ever had even known about and like trademarks with the IPOS office across the spectrum. But the main role of, uh, of like of my role was to actually create the crystals on the platform, like create these uh, investment vehicles in a way where when investors come on board, they look at a crystal A or crystal B or crystal C. If our algorithm recommends it to them, so be it. 
or they can actually go onto the platform like Expedia style, go through the list of like 150 crystals at that point of time, click a button and be invested into the constituents of that crystal, which could be single name stock, it could be options, it could be, you know, bonds, you name it. So my role was primarily creation of those crystals. And obviously, you know, it being a small startup, you're there to like try to help to raise capital, help the founders pitch the story, et cetera. So the entire caboodle. Got it. That's great. You know, quite recently, you uh, actually joined another early stage startup, Asia Collective at the time, now rebranded as Flow. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, on its surface, a debt collection fintech is actually quite different from, you know, trading and wealth management. So why did you decide to make that shift from Crystal, which is maybe a little more aligned to what you used to do at Amora, to, to debt collection? Oh, it's, it's very different. But um, I think going back to like the end of 2019, uh, there were two main factors, I think, that kind of pushed me to switch from Crystal to Flow. Uh, first and foremost, it was my personal view that, uh, you know, the fintech ecosystem has done phenomenally well in Singapore and across the globe, but I just started, I, I wanted to adopt more of a contrarian approach where I felt that the fintech ecosystem has gone into, in no other ways to put it, I guess, but to a very large, into a very large bubble. So my idea was, okay, this has been a fantastic learning journey for me to go from an investment bank, well-established brand name, growing a fintech startup from the ground up, and then what else is potentially out there that can be a very interesting contrarian play in case the economy turns south. Now, don't take me wrong, I had no idea it would turn COVID south, but at the same time, it was <laughs> indeed, not at all. I'm not the Oracle uh, of Omaha by any stretch of the means, but- The Oracle it was of just, Singapore. Oh, <laughs> I'll take that title if it's available, but uh, sadly, no. Uh, but no, it, it was my idea that, okay, you know, let's see what kind of business models are out there that are uh, that can withstand a massive economy or a decent economy correction. And then I got introduced by a fellow Lehman uh, alumni to uh, Thomas, who's the founder of Flow. And the connection was really good in uh, November of last year itself. Uh, it took a very short period of time for me to truly understand the business model, what the company is looking to do and what the vision of the company is most importantly, right? Which is to empower consumers in Asia to overcome financial difficulties. So it's a completely different uh, ball game from the wealth management segment where you're looking to make affluent people even a lot more affluent. Here it was in the other side of the spectrum where we are dealing with a lot of borrowers that have a lot of financial difficulties how do you deal with them in an ethical manner to try and create like a win-win solution between financial institutions as well as the borrower? And I think it was a combination of those two factors that led me to join the company. And, you know, hindsight is 2020, obviously, but given the current environment that we are in, uh, the business model has not just withstood with like the test of time to some extent, but has done phenomenally well. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely want to spend some time talking about you know, the COVID impact the last few months, but maybe to set the context, you can tell the group a little bit more about Flow and what is so unique about the uh, debt collection process that you guys employ. Sure. So the, the second you hear the words debt collection, right, the mind immediately goes to like either thugs with baseball bats, like beating up consumers or SME founders or MNCs, a board of directors, right? Like coercion, uh, legal threats, uh, breaking of bones, smearing red paint on people's house walls. And these are not like made up examples. Like literally when I went to Vietnam and we're going from uh, the airport to the office, their equivalent of ERP gantries, there are a bunch of uh, dudes sitting on motorbikes, staring at cars go by, staring at motorbikes go by. And I'm asking, and Thomas, the founder, he's like, do you see those people? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What about them? And he's like, these are debt collectors in Vietnam where they're waiting over there because the cars or motorbikes slow down. They can catch the license plate number of these people. They have a list. They have like a paper list of all these delinquent borrowers. And once they see that car, they match it with the license plate and then they go chase them. So that's the kind of 
uh, activities that take place in the debt collection space in emerging Asia, which is where we, Flow, play in. So uh, what Flow does is you take all of that on one side. We are the complete opposite of that, where what we are looking to do is bring an ethical aspect, an educational aspect of credit management to the ecosystem of emerging Asia. And we work with borrowers, firstly, to educate them, to actually explain to them, you know, this is what a loan means. When you borrow $100 equivalent of the local currency, this is what interest rates are. These are what late payments are. This is the amount of late payments that you've racked up. Based on this, your credit history will be affected. Because of this $200 loan that you've taken, in three years' time, you might not be able to get money from another lender to borrow a car or to buy a car, to take a house mortgage. You know, like your, your, your life gets impacted because of that one mistake, quote unquote, that you made without knowing what you're signing up for. So that's what our ethos is. That, that's what, why we got set up over here. When Thomas moved from East Europe, which has a much more mature credit collection market or ecosystem, and came and set up shop over here, it was to try and bring those best practices, stuff that happens in, stuff that people in East Europe, the US, Australia, take for granted, or people in Singapore for that matter, to a very, very large extent. We, you know, everyone takes it for granted in these emerging economies, Vietnam, Indonesia, India, where we are set up, it doesn't take place. So that's where this whole, uh, that's when flow originated, uh, headquartered in Singapore, first office in Vietnam, second in Indonesia, third in India, where we work with financial institutions on a servicing contract where these financial institutions, it could be banks, it could be MFIs, it could be fintechs. MFIs are multi-financial institutions. Anyone who lends money to consumers on an unsecured basis, think of it like your credit cards, personal loans, uh, stuff like that, cash loans, consumer loans, et cetera. They lend money to consumers. There will be non-performing loans, people who default on those payments. At that point of time, uh, these financial institutions, uh, we approach them as a professional credit management company to try and assist them in recovering their NPLs. So we get the data dump of all of these consumers who are delinquent on their loans. We take that information, come up with curated uh, proprietary collection strategies using a number of AI modules that we've created in-house to maximize recovery. And we deal with the borrowers in an ethical manner to try and recover this delinquent loans. That's the business model. Thank you very much, Arun. And, you know, when you were talking about, uh, you know, more traditional methods that are used in debt collection, especially in Southeast Asia, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about some of the conversations I, I have, you know, as part of Grab with external stakeholders about debt collection for our lending operations. And, you know, people always make the same assumption. They say, you know, they think we employ the same traditional money lender strategies. We're going to people's doors with, you know, bats and clubs. And I have to say, no, 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 we don't do any of that. Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering, you know, do you think that this is this challenge around, uh, you know, debt collection, the stigma around it, do you think that is a very Southeast Asia thing? And what do you think that is rooted in? It's extremely difficult because this kind of credit management or debt collection has been going on for the past 30, 40 years, right? Where if you're a bank and you've lent money, sure, by all means, I will employ these thugs. So, you know, I wash my hands clean of this stuff. I've given this portfolio to this other agency and let them go run amok and trying to collect as much money as possible in an unethical manner. So from that perspective, we are facing an uphill battle. But I think a couple of things have changed in recent course, right? And that's one big thing is social media, where now the brand name of a company, so if I am a nobody in a small little village in Vietnam, Indonesia, or India, and someone comes and threatens me, I, can, I have this massive loud microphone courtesy Facebook, courtesy these chat channels, you name it, the news, the media, online media, where I can voice my concerns. And if that gets escalated, which it will, uh, to the required regulatory authorities, 
you can undergo a massive fine and your business can be threatened. Because obviously every regulator out there is ex and government bodies are extremely concerned about their end consume, about the consumer, about their citizens, especially during a time like COVID. So in a weird way, while, you know, obviously a lot of borrowers, consumers are undergoing a lot of financial distress during this time, unemployment is shot through the roof. It's all about working with these people, trying to come up with an amicable solution. And so I think it was that kind of, uh, the difficulties that we faced were from every aspect altogether, right? Convincing financial institutions that look, you don't need to threaten borrowers. If you explain it to them in an intelligent, simple, easy to understand manner, not only do you not have any reputational risk, which is of paramount for any big brand, and also at the same time, you can actually achieve very, very healthy recoveries because the borrower knows that you're not trying to fight against them, you're trying to work with them. It's funny you mentioned Grab, right? Fantastic brand name that's come up just in the last like five, 10 years. You, you would never go through what Citibank probably went through. I'm just naming Citibank, like Citibank, HSBC, DBS, across the spectrum, right? What they were doing 20 years ago of dealing with these traditional collection companies, you, would, you as Grab would never ever do that right now. One person complains, you know, all these marquee uh, VC investors you have on your cap table will start raising the white flag. And that's something that we work very closely with very large fintech companies such as yourselves in this process. It, it's, it, in a weird way, it's so much easier dealing with quality large fintech names because they don't have that baggage of this traditional collection industry mindset where you have to threaten people, otherwise borrowers will never pay money back. Yeah, thanks, Arun. Um, that's uh, that's really interesting, and I appreciate the shout out for for Grab and working with bigger <laughs> bigger fintechs. Um, and you're right, we don't have a lot of the same challenges as traditional financial institutions. Um, you know, you touched on the AI a little bit, uh, so I'm wondering how do you actually leverage your AI to create a really customer centric experience that's not incurring a ton of opex, a lot of manual work for your team. Um, and and how is this more ethical than um, more traditional debt collection strategies? Sure thing. Firstly, AI is this massive buzzword used in fintechs. It's overused to a very large extent, to be completely honest. But that being said, the way we use artificial intelligence is we kind of break it down into bite-sized modules. So quality control is a great example. One of the biggest issues as a credit management company is quality control because of all the uh, you know, modes of communication that we have between us and the borrower, SMSs, WhatsApp, emails, uh, automated phone calls, all of that can be controlled from headquarters or at an operational level within the company, right? So the text for an SMS, the entire journey that we take the borrowers through for education, et cetera, is controlled because we create those text messages. We create those automated voice messages, et cetera. The problem that comes in for us is where we employ, uh, where we employ uh, calling operators, right? Because at, for certain strategies, at a certain point of time, the borrower does talk to our call center operator. And when it comes to that phase, you know, how do we ensure when, so currently I think we are managing about 250 different call operators across our three operating centers. How do we ensure this quality control guarantee that we are providing to our financial institutions? How do we actually uh, you know, ensure that that is executed at the ground level, at an operator level? And so, so for that very specific module, we came, up with this, uh, we came up with this artificial intelligence module to try and solve that problem. Wherein when an operator is talking to a borrower, while we have created this thing called a smart script where all these questions start coming up on the operator's monitor, ask the borrower this question. If the borrower answers this question, you know, then, you, then you reply back with, with this reply. Or if the borrower says no, then you go to this answer. So it's like this huge uh, binary decision tree where all, the, where all the call operator needs to do is kind of go through that list. 
But so that's the first level of check, right? Where we don't let the operator start using whatever language him or her wants to use to try to convince the borrower to work with the borrower to pay money down. So that's one aspect. The second aspect though, is to test that. How do you ensure that that's actually happening? So what we do is we convert all of these voice recordings into text. We run that text through our screener to ensure that like foul language is not used. There's no amount of threats being implemented. There's no under the table dealings where the operator is trying to convince the borrower to try and pay money to another account. All sorts of stuff starts happening in this level because it's a numbers game, right? You're dealing with so many operators to control them is very difficult. So we use like a very bite-sized module specifically for that. We use artificial intelligence to try and bifurcate when a list of consumers is provided to us, what kind of strategies do we use to try and maximize our recovery from them? Because this is a space where we'll go up to a Grab or a Citibank or a DBS and it'll be, okay, you know, these are my 20,000 consumers who have taken credit card loans. They are delinquent. Here you go. Here's this data dump. You figure out what to do with it. So it's not a, now traditional collection agencies will have a one size fits all approach. And I don't even mean the traditional, traditional ones of threatening people and going to their houses and stuff, but even like the semi technology savvy ones where you receive this list and then you start immediately calling people. You immediately start sending them the same WhatsApp or SMSs, et cetera. What we do is we start segregating that large data dump into homogenous portfolios. So for these homogenous portfolios, we are able to target these specific groups with very specific strategies, which we believe will be able to connect with the borrower in a much better manner to be able to repay that loan. So that kind of segregation, that kind of creation of strategies, that kind of automation, you were mentioning OPEX, it would be extremely expensive to be able to employ operators to educate each and every single borrower. Instead, we use a lot of SMSs, depending on what the reply to those SMSs are, we go down a different path. If they don't even understand what this loan is, we go down a separate educational path. And we keep trying to like sieve this data into different verticals to try and maximize recovery. Uh, one of our, uh, the largest investor that we have currently, DEG, which is basically in a way like the right-hand arm of the German government, took our mission and was like, you know, this is amazing. I love what you're doing with this. Go ahead, here's a certain amount of capital. And then in addition to that, what they did is, here's a certain amount of grant capital to try and set up an, you know, an educational portal where you actually have data about, or you actually have videos, you have informational content specifically for educating borrowers. Nothing to do with the loans, nothing to do with anything else, but just trying to impart that message, that financial literacy to the masses, to the, to the underprivileged masses of these emerging markets. And that's a huge project that we're going through right now, which will hopefully be ready in the next couple of months. And I really hope that that's going to really elevate the entire ecosystem of uh, financial borrowers across the Asian region. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining that. Arun. Could you please share uh, what is your strategy for non-contacted borrowers? We, we employ uh, various different modules of trying to uh, increase the contactability rate because that is one huge issue in the collection side where as I was mentioning earlier, right? These are the 20,000 cases that are given to you. These are loans or these are cases where your contactability can be as low as like one or 2%. A very large bank in India, for example, gave us these cases that are 10 years delinquent. So the loan was literally given 3,600 days ago and we have to go about trying to collect it. From a business model perspective, the commission that we charge on the recovery of those loans is over 50% in a way. So from that aspect, you know, if we recover a dollar, uh, 50 cents becomes our revenue. So we are able to spend certain amounts of money on our own to try to be able to, trying to be able to identify who this person is. Maybe their phone number has changed. Maybe their email addresses have changed. We work with banks very, or financial institutions very closely 
where you realize that they have a lot of silos within their organization. So for a bank, for example, if it's, we're dealing with the credit card department, we will go back to them and say, you know, have you given so-and-so person six other kinds of loans? Have you upsold them with other kinds of stuff? And then maybe, you know, when the person took a house loan in addition to that, the contact information was obviously uploaded in that data segment, but not in the credit card loan segment. So we kind of like work with financial institutions to cross-reference those different data points to be able to reach out to these partners. We do not do unethical stuff like trying to snoop them out on social media and then start shaming them on their Facebook wall saying, so-and-so, you know, you've taken the loan, pay this money back, et cetera, which a number of collection agencies do. We try to work with, again, ethical skip tracing agencies that have a lot of API connectivity with a lot of social media networks, et cetera, trying to get their specific contact information for us to be able to reach out with that specific individual to try and work with them again saying, you know, you probably don't even know this. This was the loan that you had taken. And many conversations are along the lines of, oh yeah, I do remember this. Let me take a look at my records. Oh yes. And then we work with them saying, look, your credit score or credit history has been affected by that. Let's work together to come up with an amicable solution and let's try and resolve that. So, Ern, I, I do also want to ask you, of course, about uh, the COVID impact while we have a few minutes left. You know, as the Oracle of Singapore, uh, you picked the right industry um, and, you know, debt collection has been extremely important uh, with COVID, uh, you know, especially um, companies, especially banks taking huge losses, uh, especially on the credit side. Uh, what does this mean for Flow? It means a lot of things in terms of our recoveries were affected, right? Because when you're dealing with borrowers and they're saying, look, I'm out of a job, there's no way for me to pay the money back, it will affect the recoveries for the financial institutions. So in the very short run, come March, April, uh, we suffered just like most other fintech companies. But come May, June, July, or I would say more like say June, July, August, the volume of cases that were given to us by our financial institutions more than made up for the drop in recovery. And, you know, whatever our revenue was in the month of Jan, while it went, it dropped by like 30, 40% come April, May, June, come uh, April, May, come June, July, August, we're all, we're at like double the numbers of the start of the year, uh, all time record last month. And, uh, you know, we also, knowing the pain point that these financial institutions are in, as you highlighted, very rightfully so, we've, inc we've started up a new vertical within flow where we've taken the advantage of working with these financial institutions for the past four years in Vietnam, three years in Indonesia, two years in India. We've taken advantage of all this data that we've collected over the years to start taking upon ourselves balance sheet risk of actually buying these portfolios. So, you know, we're working with them on a servicing model. We know what we are doing. On a daily basis, we are able to understand what the recoveries on a very similar portfolio is with all this data analysis, financial modeling of taking advantage of all this data, we are able to accurately price portfolios thereby going up to the same financial institutions and saying, look, we know your balance sheet is stretched right now. This is a black box because, you know, even if you have a lot of money in the world, what are you going to do with like 30,000 delinquent credit card cases? You can't do anything. You need operational excellence. We have the operational excellence. We've been working with you for a number of years or even a number of months. We are able to price this portfolio accurately. We exchange the money, we give you money, we take the portfolio on our own books and thereby it enables us to work with borrowers for a more extended period of time to try and recover that delinquent portfolio. So when we work on the servicing side, we traditionally work with financial institutions anywhere from like one month to three months. So it's a relatively shorter time frame of collection strategies. But when we buy the portfolio, that asset is ours. So we are able to work with borrowers in a much more longer duration. Like we can stretch out debt moratoriums, loan forgiveness, uh, interest rate payment forgiveness, you name it. Like a number of different aspects 
of being able to work with the borrower to try and get this person back to being debt-free, to be able to take more loans, hopefully in a smarter manner in the future, which will not lead the person to go down this delinquent path again. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It's, it seems like actually COVID has created new opportunities uh, you know, in terms of like buying debt uh, and putting them on your books. And I believe you guys actually just raised, you know, you raised a Series A a few months ago, but you raised debt that was announced actually two weeks ago from Genesis Ventures um, just for this purpose. So congratulations, really excited to see, uh, you know, how that goes for you guys. Thank you so much. And exactly, well, like, like yeah. equity capital is great for growth of the company. When it comes to debt capital, and we have to pay a certain interest on that on a monthly, quarterly, semi-annual basis, you know, you need to try and be able to recover that money from a productive asset. And, you know, a big shout out to Genesis and all our equity investors for that matter, for allowing us to go down this path where we were able to convince them, this is our value, this is our business model, this is why this new vertical makes so much sense at flow at a time like this, to help the financial ecosystem, while at the same time obviously helping us, because on the servicing model, your rough commissions on a blended average is anywhere between like 15 to 25%. When you buy the portfolio, each cent that you recover is straight away your revenue. And the kind of recoveries that we were projecting from these kinds of portfolios is more than enough to compensate for the cost of capital of debt. And this is something, it, it's relatively new in this region. Uh, it's, it requires a certain amount of operational excellence uh, because, you know, as I was saying earlier, right, like even with a lot of capital, you can't buy this stuff. It's not like you can go to court or you can have an army of 10 lawyers and buy a bankrupt construction company and try and turn it around. You need to have a sizable amount of operations. You need to have those proprietary strategies, those uh, technology modules to enable efficient recoveries. If you could share some more examples of collection practice differences in Europe and Asia, so, you know, thinking about things that are unique to Asia, what are some more ways that our collection practices are different? So I, I think the big difference is, again, the contactability side of things, because in places like the US and Europe, when KYC is done, when any change of information takes place, it is still a lot easier to be able to identify who that borrower is the fraudulent cases are a lot less when it comes to these loans. Like there are cases in Vietnam, for that matter, where people have bought the identity of like 50,000 different people and they've taken loans using that identity. And when you call up this person, they're like, I had no idea my uh, equivalent of IC or my national identification number has been used for this loan. So those kinds of dealings makes the collection industry, dare I say, easier in Europe and the US because you're able to contact the right person in a more streamlined fashion. Fraudulent cases are a lot less. The flip side though is, you know, in this capitalistic world that we live in, the commission rates for recoveries or credit management companies in Europe and Asia are substantially lower than in Asia. Like, so Europe and the US is substantially low, lower than Asia. So from that perspective, it still makes sense from a business model point of view to be over here. So that, that to me, I think is the biggest difference where uh, commission rates are substantially lower. The purchasing market where over there, it's a very mature market, right? As a lender, the primary business model is lending. Now, once you go through that lending phase, regardless of how good your models are, there will be an NPL side. When you go into the NPL side, you, Typically is there's an in-house agency that, you know, your own employees that tries to recover the first anywhere from one month to three months delinquent loans. Because, you know, you want to keep that relationship of the borrower. Once that's done, after three months up to one year, you typically employ professional collection agencies of which there are very few in Asia. So that's, you know, one big boost to our business model. But once it goes after a certain point of time, rather than keeping that on the books, rather than having that OPEX, of employing people to deal with collection agencies to, you know, that entire, like there are huge departments of collection, of collection departments within banks. Rather than doing that on a quarterly basis, you typically sell out these portfolios because, you know, you've written these portfolios off, they've become NPLs, sell these portfolios. That 
kind of mature market is not coming to Asia. And that's another thing that we're doing the education aspect of. You're educating the borrowers about loans. You're educating the larger financial institutions that look, this is what you guys can do right now. Now we are here. We are a player in this market. We can accurately price portfolios for you, you know, sell this stuff off to us and uh, let us do our job. This is our bread and butter, right? Like we are supposed to be good at this and give us an opportunity for that. The follow-up question is, you know, should your strategy differ by type of financial institution for collections? So, uh, yes, it, defin it definitely differs from partner to partner, like a bank to an MFI to a FinTech. And within that, various character traits of the individual borrower. So we go down to the granular, as granular as level as possible to come up with more personalized strategies. Let me give you a simple example. FinTech, typical person who borrows, 30 to 35 year old person, maybe second job, third job out of high school or poly or university, very tech savvy, completely different way of reaching out to these people through digital means, completely different words that we've used in our SMSs, WhatsApp, automated phone calls, and our operator when they talk to them. Because the whole idea is, look, you've taken a loan. How do we work together to try and resolve this? You have to be able to take a car loan or a house loan in, say, six months or a year or two years. Very different from if a 50-year-old person who's gone to their bank branch to try and take a loan, how do you convince this person? What kind of messages do you use? What kind of words do you use to psychologically, you know, enable this borrower to explain your point of view, to convince this person, this is in their best interest to pay down this loan. What kind of payment plan can we come up with? What kind of loan forgiveness is required to make this financial institution whole again? And how do we work together on that? So it's very, very differing, not just between individual partner types, but even at a more granular level. Got it. I'm gonna ask you one last rapid fire question. I just wanna know, uh, what are you most excited about when it comes to uh, debt collection, especially with AI? And what scares you? What I am most excited about is truly uh, our new business vertical, which is called flow trading of purchasing portfolios. I think if we can get to the scale that I, and I'm sure Thomas and our investors are hoping for, I think it can make a massive change in the financial ecosystem in Asia, because we can help financial institutions a lot more than just purely on the servicing side of things. We can help them clean up their balance sheet and having the freedom of acquired these, of having acquired these portfolios, we can genuinely work with borrowers for a much longer duration to try to help them to get back on their feet, get debt free, and you know, not go down the path of what sadly a lot of delinquent consumers and borrowers have sadly gone down in, in the emerging Asian economy. So I think that's what's most interesting to me for us to be able to try and execute at flow. And secondly, uh, expansion into other countries, right? Like why stop at Indonesia, Vietnam, and India? Uh, up next is Philippines, uh, Malaysia, Thailand. So many different uh, regions over here, so many different countries here that I believe could truly use an ethical credit management company to try and help both financial institutions as well as borrowers. Uh, from the fear aspect, um, I think that's quite a tough one. Uh, and I'll keep this more generic in a way where any startup has a million and a one different problems, right? Where you do not have the luxury of a huge legal team, of a huge operations team. One thing goes well in the morning. By the time I'm going to sleep in the evening, there are like 10 pain points, 10 problems that have to be solved. So I think that's the biggest fear where you can't, like we truly won't be able to realize our dream, our vision of what we are looking to do at Flow because of all these relatively small, but when put together, you know, it can be huge problems, right? And 
uh, capital crunch. Regardless, uh, I, we, we, we are one of the few fintech companies, I believe, in Asia right now that are setting all-time record revenues. But if there is a huge crunch in capital, if VCs are just across the board, are just like, you know what, the fintech ecosystem was in a huge bubble. I don't care. All fintechs look alike to me. I'm going to go down some other path, some other industry to invest. I think that's the biggest fear if we aren't able to truly realize our mission. Yeah, yeah, that's a scary one for us as a fintech as well. But thank you so much for being here as our guest. Thank you to the audience um, for joining us this time. And we're looking forward to seeing you next time. Uh, take care, everyone. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, and just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.